All right, guys, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 25 tonight, and the title is Unexpected Situations. And uh, again, Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law, right, and God makes his law so clear. And we talk about this all throughout this book, but just it's worth rem- reminding, rem- reminding ourselves, I love the boundaries that God puts out in dealing with issues and intense situations. That's our God, though, right? Like, he, he lets us know what he wants. He lets us know how he wants us to live, how to treat people, how to deal with unexpected situations. God is a God of decency and order, and he knows what is good for us, and he knows what actions we need to take to deal with things in a godly way. You know, God, I love uh, Psalm 8, where King David says that, you know, who, you know, God is mindful of him. He's shocked. Like, God thinks of me. I can't believe it. God listens to you. He cares for you, and he's there for you. And I was just at the pastor summit the last few days, and the main benefit of being there with like 20, 25 uh, senior pastors from the Deep South is that we're there for one another. We have an understanding. We all face the same challenges, many of the same situations. And, you know, because ministry can get lonely, life can get lonely. But when you have people that get it, you're, you're there for each other. And it's such an encouragement. So are we astounded, though, that the Lord thinks of us, hears our prayers, and fights our battles? You know, sometimes when things get common, like we take for granted how good God is towards us and how he loves us so much, like we were just singing. I mean, God is laying all these laws out so to take care of the children of Israel when they enter the promised land. He lays out his word so that we are taken care of and kept safe as we stay in the boundaries that God has set for us. And this is why I love these chapters so much, because we see the Lord's heart in the retelling of the law. He loves his children. He loves you. And so let's pray, you guys, and we'll start chapter 25 tonight. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity, this privilege to gather together. Lord, uh, we know the the word speaks, Lord. I I share the word, Lord, but you're the one that gives power to it. And we just pray, God, that you would speak to each of our lives, speak into each of our lives individually and as a church, and uh, that our hearts would be open, minds would be open to what you have to say tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 25, verse 1, it says, If there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these. And your brother be humiliated in your sight. And so it starts out with a, a stark, intense you know, reality. But this is a responsibility of all courts and governments. When an offender was found guilty and was sentenced to be beaten, he was not to receive more than 40 lashes or blows or stripes. You know, the Jews actually would inflict 39 stripes. And here's Paul's take on the government from Romans chapter 13, verse 4. It says, For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So, yeah, the Lord is good with punishment, right? There's discipline that has to happen. But he's also against excessive punishment. You know, you reap what you sow, yes, but also there's such a thing as excessive reaping. You know, and this was intended to prevent excessive punishment, this law. 
And there, there have been court cases, you've probably seen some, where it, it's very clear the punishment was way too severe for the crime, right? It happens. But in 2 Corinthians 11.24, remember Paul lists all, of, all that he faced, all that he went through, shipwrecked, beaten, all kinds of stuff. And he says this, he says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. So at that point, the Jews were actually following this law when, when they whipped Paul. And I love how the Lord... Yeah, chastises and corrects, right? But also he doesn't overcorrect or overchastise. It's like as parents, we should have a balance. There has to be discipline, right? We don't want to let our kids parent us, right? For some reason in the culture, that's starting to happen. Like, whatever they want, we'll do. It's like, what? Who's the parent here? We are the parents, right? The adults are the parents. But we want to have a balance of discipline and grace. Discipline and grace. So yeah, punishment but not excessive punishment. And then verse 4, we go on, it says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And so this was about like treating an animal humanely, a working animal. And it's like, it would be pretty bad and cruel if an ox was uh, walking on all the grain, right, yet muzzled so he could not eat anything, right? So Paul actually applied this principle a few times concerning the minister's right to be supported by the people. And there are full-time ministers, and I really have experienced the benefit of ministering full-time and how much ministry can actually be done. You know, my last church, again, I worked at, uh, as an assistant pastor for about eight years. I was able to start a bunch of ministries, raise people up to, I mean, all kinds of things. It was awesome. I got to 40 to 50 hours a week just doing ministry and because I had the time to do it. And I've been in full-time here for almost two years now in Calvary Chapel Mobile, and the Lord fills my schedule with all kinds of biblical counseling, studying, planning, meeting, you know, with other ministries. Uh, and it was cool because this last week I met with a guy who runs the Mission of Hope, and it was amazing because we had lunch. We spoke for about an hour and a half about what they do and how, as a church, we can be involved with them. You know, our church is going to work with them. And, uh, you know, I'll be there at, on Tuesday to teach the men who are in this program, the rehabilitation program, basically, about 50 or 60 of, of these men. And I get to do, like, I get to do things like that because it's my job, and I, and I love it. And uh, it's not an occupation. It's a, it's a vocation. And I have a, actually, I have a friend in L.A. who he, he's done, uh, he's led a church for years. I mean, so many years. He's, he's a pastor at Calvary Chapel, and um, he has a secular job. And I remember... Me and my pastor friend were talking to him, and it's like, how come you just don't go full-time pastoring? And so he's like, he's really honest. He's like, well, because my job is really good. I make really good money. And I like, you know, to take my wife to on cruises and nice things, you know. And it's fine, you know. We, we, we tried to talk him into going full-time. He's like, it's not for me, which is whatever God's calling you to do. But I just see so much benefit in serving the Lord full-time uh, if that is what God calls a person to do. So the point is that... The one who ministers in spiritual things should be provided for material things. And we continue on. Verse 5, it says, if, if, uh, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go uh, into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. 
He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. And then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. And so, and so this is like the brother's uh, marriage obligation. So, so in Israel, if a, man, if a man died without leaving descendants to carry on his name, it was seen as like the worst thing ever. It was seen as a travesty. So if a man dies and he has no son, it was the responsibility of the brothers to take the deceased brother's widow as a wife. And this was actually called, there's a term for this, uh, Leverite marriage, and it was done among a whole bunch of people groups, the Hittites, the Assyrians, many other, many other people groups. But if the brother of the deceased man refused to take the responsibility, they were to be shamed by the widows, obviously. And they would remove their sandals, and you know the widow would, would spit in his face. And again, <laughs> God is ordering everything in case someone dies. And and, and I was thinking about this, you know, thinking about death, right? This is what we are mindful of as Christians. Like, we don't dwell on death, but people don't like to talk about death or, or mortality because it scares them, especially unbelievers. But for the believer, death is described as falling asleep, right? It's, and death is not a fear for believers, right? This body wears out. It's going to. And the Lord has prepared a place for us in heaven with himself and with other believers. And, and we're not trying to rush to get into heaven, but we are secure in salvation, and we know what to expect when our time here is done, right? So we have no, nothing to fear. I remember before I was a believer, I remember one particular time for some reason I was like lying in my bed at night thinking about death. <laughs> and I was an unbeliever, and I was like, wow, what happens when you die? Nothing, darkness, blackness. And I was like scared. You know, and it all changed, though, when I was saved, and I realized, okay, there is a future and a hope once these bodies wear out, especially for believers, right? Unbelievers don't understand this. They think it's weird and probably, like, not healthy to think about dying. Yet for us, we have a future and a hope beyond the short shadow of a life, right? It's, it's so short. It goes by so fast. The older you are, I think the more you realize it just, it's, a, it's a vapor, like the Bible says. That's why we should redeem the time, right? Make the best use of the time that we have here. And the best use of the time is to live for the Lord. So now, wives, uh, verse 11 and 12, wives let husbands fight. This is interesting. Look at verse 11 and 12. If two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, yes, you read that right, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall not pity her. You can't make this stuff up, right? I'm just saying, like, the Bible is real. It's very raw. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. So, so if, a, if a wife interfered by grabbing the man in a fight, you know, that her husband was involved in, then the hand she used to grab was just cut off. And, and it, was, it was like a severe penalty because her actions may endanger the man having an heir. And so punishment in the Bible that, that is from God it is just according to... To him, and he is the one who is perfectly just. We have to, we kind of have to remember that because we may not think something is fair, or just, or right, but according to the Lord, it's it's perfect judgment. God's job is to judge. Our job is to love and share truth. 
And sometimes I think Christians think it's their job to judge churches, believers, works of other Christians. Now, sure, just to be clear, we know people are Christ followers by the fruit they bear, right? John 15. But we're not to be like sin sniffers of the Christian. We're not judges of souls. Uh, do not, I would just say, do not take God's job of judging away from him. In a sense, we have to stay in our own lane, not attempt to usurp the authority of the Lord. And you know, I, uh, I rode up to Talladega with my friend, Pastor Joey, from Calvary Chapel, Baton Rouge. And, uh, and on, the way, uh, on the way back, it happened a few times, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this, but big rigs, they just, I don't know if they're falling asleep or just half paying attention, but they kind of get in your lane. Like, it happened like more, three or four times on the, way, on the way back today. And it was just like they swerve over. It's like, well, we have to be very careful. You know, when that happens, you like speed up and get past them so you don't get run off the road. But it's dangerous to attempt to do the job that God does, right? And so we have to be clear on that. Some people play God or they act as a functional savior, and that's not right. So verse 13, continue on. It says, you shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 16, for all who do such things, all who be, uh, behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. So honesty was requ required when it came to weights and measures. And see, oftentimes men had one set of scales for buying and another set of scales for selling. And so this was deceiving. It was an abomination to the Lord. Go through the Psalms, go through the Proverbs, and you'll see how much the Lord detests lying. God hates lying. And I think in our culture, we downplay lying so much in our society, and we think it's the lesser sin. I mean, everyone does it. Everyone loves Just a little lie. It's no big deal. There are so many verses in the Bible about lying, from the serpent deceiving Eve in Genesis to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. God is clear on the subject of lying. And I just want to read you some verses about this. There's many more than this. But Psalm 34, 13 says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Proverbs 10, 18 says, Whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a fool. Proverbs 14.5 says, an honest witness does not deceive, but a false witness pours out lies. Proverbs 12.22 says, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. And you know, there are some things that God cannot do. I know we don't like to say this, but in our, sometimes in our vernacular, we say God can do anything. That's not true. <coughs> Excuse me. God can't create a rock too big to pick up because that's against his nature. God cannot associate with darkness. God cannot sin. God literally cannot break his promises. God cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Hebrews 6, 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. Titus 1, 2 says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Because our whole life as Christians revolves around truth. I mean, and obviously, lying is opposite of truth. And so this is why we emphasize God's word and teach it, you know, that the message of truth is everything, right? And I, I love what either Tozer or Wearsby, I don't know, one of those old guys uh, said, you know, we're not the manufacturers of truth, we're the distributors. You know, we, we tell people the truth, 
And sometimes they're like, well, I don't, I don't agree with what you say. Well, you don't agree with what God says because all I'm doing is relaying the reality of the truth that is in God's word. And so the message, though, the message of truth is everything. So that's why lying is so horrible. That's why God detests lying. Now, verse 17 to 19, he talks about destroying the wicked. In verse 17, he says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks and all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So remember, in Exodus chapter 17, the descendants of Amalek, they were, totally, they were to be totally destroyed because of their cruelty and treachery. Now, Israel was told not to forget to destroy the Amalekites, but they did forget. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul disobeyed the Lord, remember, by not wiping out, wiping all of them out like he should have. He should have killed them all. And further, it was not until the days of Hezekiah that they actually defeated the rest of the Amalekites in 1 Chronicles. But since they didn't wipe them out, the Amalekites gave them trouble until they were eradicated. And isn't this the result of disobeying the Lord, though? Like, constant trouble at every turn, confusion, conflict. David had serious family issues after he committed adultery and had uh, Uriah murdered. In the Psalms, you look at post-sin, what David wrote, and he was an emotional wreck. He was an emotional wreck, and that was because of the sin that he committed. So it, we'd be foolish to say there's no repercussions for sinning. Sometimes people lean, I, I 100% believe in God's grace, but sometimes we lean so far on God's grace that it's like, ah, he, it's not a big deal if we sin. God, you know, God doesn't wink at sin. He's not like, well, that's, that's fine, just a little bit, you know. God never makes sin permissible. You know, God hates sin, so should we. So chapter 26, you guys, verse 1, it says, And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground, which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God has given you, and put it in a basket, and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Verse 3, And you shall go to the one who is a priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And then the priest shall take the basket of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. So after they were settled in the land, they were supposed to, do, uh, to go to God's sanctuary, present the first fruits of the produce to the priest, in joyful recognition for what God has done. And again, giving should be a heart, you know, giving should be from a heart of love and a countenance of joy. Like if, if a person can't, my pastor used to always say this, it's like if you can't give joyfully, then just keep it. It's like our heart when giving matters more than the amount. <laughs> like the, the, the well-off, uh, well remember in the New Testament, the well-off gave out of abundance, so it's nothing for them. They didn't even miss the money, even though it was a lot. But the widow only had two mites, less than a penny, and she gave all that she had, and that was worshiping. And Jesus called out her great faith. She gave from the heart. Our heart matters when we give. We don't give to be seen like the Pharisees, nor do we give to get something in return. 
We give because all we have is from the Lord in the first place. Not just 10%, it's all his. Then continuing on, you guys, in verse 5, it says, And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and uh, populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. And then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our afflictions and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt <coughs> excuse me, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to the place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So the children of Israel were to rehearse, if you will, like the Lord's dealing with them in grace. They were to begin with their ancestor Jacob, who was the wandering Syrian, going on to slavery in Egypt, then God's mighty deliverance, and concluding with their possession for the land flowing with milk and honey. The land flowing with milk and honey, it's, it's figurative, sure, but also it was, a scientific, it was scientific terminology. Because in agricultural terms, they speak of milk flow and honey flow. And this has to do with the peak seasons of spring and summer, when pastures are their most productive in their most productive stages. The livestock that feed on the forage and the bees that visit the blossoms are, are producing corresponding flow of milk and honey. So in a land that's rich and green and, and luxuriant pastures. So when God spoke of such a land of Israel, he obviously foresaw an abundant life of joy, victory, content, and contentment for his people. So God took them from slavery to salvation, right, from bondage to blessing. And this is exactly what God has done in your life. Like, if you meet a Christian, you can know for sure if they're truly a believer, genuine Christ follower, this is part of their story. They were delivered from death, darkness, and destruction. And in that sense, we all have a similar testimonies. <coughs> yeah, the details are different, but we're all saved, set apart, and being sanctified daily. And don't forget what God has done in your life. It's astounding. It's encouraging to others. Your testimonies matter. I mean, they're powerful. Share them. I remember there was one lady years ago who was like, I don't know if I should share my testimony with my daughter. Because it was like a crazy, crazy testimony. Before Christ, it was pre-Christ, it was just, it was, it was bad. And I just said, yeah, share it. Maybe when she's younger, you share less details. As your child gets older, maybe you share a little bit more to, to where she can handle it or whatever. But yeah, your testimony is powerful, powerful. And so verse 11 I like this one, rejoice. Verse 11 says, So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. So rejoice for all that God has blessed you with. So when we receive from the Lord, we give back to him, and the result should be joy and rejoicing. He has supplied us with all good things. So why are Christians, as Christians, why are we sometimes not joyful? There are, you know, sure, there's a time when you're grieving, there's a time where it's like, yeah, you're not expected to be joyful, right? That's a time to be comforted and consoled. But generally speaking, there should be no downers or pessimists or, or constantly negative people in the family of God. Joy comes when we focus on our Savior, not the storm. So if we're perpetually miserable, you know, unbelievers will not look at us and go, wow, I want to be them. 
Like, I want to be Christians, too, if they're, they're so, like, horribly miserable. No one's going to want to be a, a follow Jesus if you're being a bad example, right? If we're prone to pessimism, that's just an indication that we should pursue the Lord more and uplift, and, and, and really to uplift and alter our attitude, because he can do that. But it's astonishing to me how some Christians do not think their attitude is part of their daily Christian walk. Read the word, and you'll see ample evidence that, of the fact that your attitude very much matters in representing Christ. And unfortunately, I think, I think COVID really ruined our Christian witness in a huge way because believers were so divi- divisive against one another. We, I mean, we just like churches, you know, it was just, it was just bad. And I, I, I grieve still thinking about, you know, 2020 and how Christians just fought over these things and their, their focus got off of Jesus, off of the gospel, off of the word of God, and onto these things that were happening in the world, and there was just so much infighting. Shouldn't be. So verse 12 says, When you have finished laying aside all the tithe in your increase of the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates to be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house, and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments, which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. Verse 14, I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us, just as you swore to your fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. So in addition to the first fruits of the tithe, the Jews were to give a festival tithe, which was to be shared with the Levite, the fatherless, and the widow every third year. And this tithe was to be distributed um, to the needy in their hometowns. And the New Testament calls it alms, right? There's the tithe, which is 10%. There's the offering, which is above 10%, and there's the alms, which is given to the poor. But also there was accountability for the people had to actually testify in that they obey the Lord concerning the tithe. They had to tell each other. <laughs> Following the Lord, it's not about acting like believers. It's about actually actively living out that life, like hearing his word and heeding his word. It's, it's a way of life, you know, as faith should be woven through every area of our lives. It shouldn't be compartmentalized. Like, I have faith on Sunday. I have faith on Wednesday night. The rest of the time, not really. Like, it should, it should affect our family, our work, our home, everything. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 16 is a call to obey. It says, This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart, with all your soul. So, from Deuteronomy chapter 4 to chapter 26, Moses reminded Israel of God's commands. Now, Moses was exhorting them of God's commands. Like, like you know them. You know what God says. Now, do it. Right? Like, remember, exhorting means, exhort, exhortation means a call to action. God calls us to action. Yeah, there are times where we're waiting on the Lord for certain promises, but even then, we may be waiting on specific promise, but it doesn't mean to remain idle in other things. Following the Lord, it's about commitment. It's about taking action, being doers of the word, not just hearers only, like James says. In verse 17, it says, Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God, and that you will walk in his ways and keep his judgments 
and his commandments and that you will obey his voice. So this was Israel's proclamation. So Israel was to proclaim two things. First and foremost, the Lord was to be their God. Second, that they will walk in his ways and keep his statutes. These things go together. The identity of our God is demonstrated by the direction of our obedience. Now, so under the old covenant, the people would listen and obey. Under the new covenant, we are saved and then we desire to obey. So verse 18 and 19, last couple of verses, you guys, it says, Also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments, and that he will, he will set you high above all nations, which he has made in praise and name and in honor, that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. So now this is God's proclamation. Israel's obedience to the Lord would be more than rewarded. God's promised, you know, that he would exalt an obedient Israel to, to set them high above all other nations he has made in praise and name and honor. It's important to recognize how God views his children, right? He loves you. <laughs> he cares about you. He's with you. He's for you. He intercedes for you. He does all for your good and his glory. You're his workmanship, his poem, his song. You're his work of art. You have a good father who rejoices when you spend time with him. And you're so loved. We can't forget how God views us. Sometimes we get down on ourselves, and sometimes we're just like, oh, I'm horrible. And that might be true. We are. We're sinners, right? We need help. We need the Lord. But at the same time, God sees us through Christ. And so he, he loves us. He's there for us. He's all, he never is going to leave us, never going to forsake us. And so we can know that and be comforted by that and encouraged by that. Uh, you know, it's a good father. Some people grew up with horrible fathers or deadbeat dads or fathers that just left, abandoned them. But our father in heaven, he's a perfect, loving father. He is the example, and he's there for us always.